Do you know, I one time, I was thinking, I spoke one time to a group of, I went to speak to church, I was at a church, and I spoke to eight people. That was it. I did a funeral one time for three people. That was all who came. And, and they were still special times, but it's a little bit difficult, you know, when you're just kind of speaking and nobody else is there. You like people to be there. You like the presence. It makes it so much more important when you have people around you. When people die, what is the main thing that, that people say they miss? They miss the presence of that person. They miss just being with them. It, they know they're in heaven, perhaps, and they say, well, I know I'll see them again, but I just miss being with them now. And one of the great gifts that God gives us is the gift of his presence. Amen. You know, God is with us. So if we admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior, we essentially acknowledge that we're imperfect human beings and we can't do this on our own, that uh, we do wrong things, that we're not good people by comparison to the God of the universe. And we believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place and he rose from the grave. And then we choose to follow him and, and commit our lives to him. We surrender ourselves fully and we give our lives to him. Then we have his presence in our lives. But the key is it's a relationship. And relationships can ebb and flow. So even though he's there, we've got to choose to interact with him. And if we don't, we don't always experience his presence. We, we can be doing things in our lives. And have you ever been in a situation where everything seems to be going well in your life and yet you feel hollow? Because you don't experience him in your life. It's like there's something missing. And then there are other times when everything in your life seems to be falling apart and yet you know that your Redeemer lives. And God sustains you and he strengthens you and he carries you through that difficult time. It was different for Jesus' direct ancestor, David. We've been talking about David in our responsibility series. And David, it was different because Jesus hadn't come and died and risen again. But God was still gracious, and at different times he would work in people's lives. He, he would come upon David even when David wasn't aware of it, and suddenly he would be writing poems and songs for God. Those are what the Psalms are. And he would enable David to fight, and he would enable David to lead, and he would do special things in David's life. But how did David and the people of Israel know that God was present among them? God was creative in letting them know that he was present letting them know that he had made a covenant with them. And the covenant was, if you follow me, you'll experience my presence. And if you don't follow me, you won't. And so he created, or had them create, under his instructions, the Ark of the Covenant. This is long before Indiana Jones was looking for it. <laughs> and this Ark of the Covenant, sometimes called the Ark of Yahweh, or God's special covenant, was an example. It was a symbol of God's presence. And so when David became king of Israel, and as a young king, he conquered Jerusalem, made it his capital, became known as the city of David. And David, you know, is now at the height of his power, and he settles everything. One of the first things he does is he sends for the Ark of the Covenant because he wants to bring it around so that he can experience, greater, have greater experience with God's presence. Because by doing that, in obedience, they are depending on God. And that very fact that they're depending on God, symbolized through this Ark, enables this to happen and to experience God's presence. So this is, what we're going to be talking about is the, the right path to God's presence today. And it's symbolized by what David does. Um, we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel verses 1 through 23. I'm not going to read it all because I, you know, it's hot out and we have a lot going on and I'm going to read some sections of it. I'm mostly just going to tell you the story. Um, I encourage you next week to read 2 Samuel um, chapter 7 verses 1 through 17 to prepare for it. 
This week also, if you really want to study, read 1 Chronicles chapter 13 and 1 Chronicles chapters 15 through 16, because those will give you more detail about the things we're going to talk about today, and we'll pull a little bit from it. So we're going to start off, first of all, we'll see that David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and he does it in a wrong way. He does the right thing, but he does it in a wrong way in the first 11 verses. To understand this covenant, uh, this Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant um, was actually, it was like a box. It was just like a big box made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And inside, it had memorial items of the time that Israel had spent in the wilderness, out in the desert. And so you know what was in there is they had the the stone tablets with the Ten Commandments that God had written and given to Moses, and he put them in there. And what was also in there was a sample of the manna, the supernatural meal that they'd given to them, and they had that in there. And what was also in there was the staff, uh, Aaron's old staff that had supernaturally begun budding like a flower or plant. And those are all in there to remind people of what God had done and of his power. And then on the top, there was a lid. And on that lid, there were carved these creatures that were half beast and half human. And they're called cherubim. And then that made like a seat. See, in the ancient world, if you were a king and you left your throne to go travel, you had to bring your throne with you. And so God says, this is my throne. This is my mobile throne. It isn't really my throne. My throne's in heaven. But my presence is with you because I'm sitting on my throne there with you when you're following me. And if you trust me and follow me, then special things will happen. Well, how do you move this thing? Well, it had rings on it, and you'd put poles through it, and you could carry it. And the only people that were allowed to carry it were the Levites. They were from the tribe of Levi, and they were the priestly tribe. And that's what that tribe did. They just worked in the temple, and they moved this thing around. And Moses and Aaron were Levites. So they moved this thing around. And when they moved it around, some pretty powerful things happened. Like when they went to the the Jordan River, they started going up to the river, and the river parted, and they walked right across it. Could you imagine going down to Jacob Meyer Park and just saying, hey, let's, let's just park this thing. And you take this thing, and all of a sudden it parts. And everybody's just looking at you, and you just walk right on through. They did that, and it had power. And so the people around them looked at it as a magic box, and the Philistines captured it. And then they got a plague. They broke out with a plague, so then they gave it back. And they brought it back in this big cart, and the Israelites thought, well, what do we do with this? So they put it in this one town that was central in location. They left it in the cart there for a while. Then they maybe took it out. We don't know, but they, they may have put a tent over it. But it was at the home of a man named Adonijah. And the story ends there with the ark. And if you calculate the time, as you look at what was happening, the ark sat there in this town for over 60 years. And it became a symbol of the spiritual decay of Israel. They had neglected their God. For 40 years, King Saul was king, and he never brought it to his capital of Gilgal. So now David comes to the rescue, and he says, we are going to bring the ark to the city of David. And he gets excited about it. And and this is what he does. He remembers that they brought it with the, the cart, so he makes a brand new cart for it. He makes a brand new tabernacle, a big tent for it, and he, and he puts it in this brand new cart, and he brings his elite soldiers, his greatest armed warriors, to help move it. And then he has two people that are assisting, not the Levites, but two men called uh, Aziah and Ahio. 
And they were like probably the grandsons of Adonijah, who had probably at this time, the man who, the house that it was staying at, he's probably not even alive anymore. And they're going to help move this thing. And they are, they are singing because they're very musical people. You know, God, God gave us, like we have instruments. They had, they, we have a guitar. In those days, they had a lyre, which was like a U-shaped instrument, and it had strings on it, and they would play that instrument. And they had all sorts of a rhythm section, and they were dancing, and they were singing, and they were, they were I mean, because God gave us song and dance and music and instruments, and, and we used it to worship him, right? And we were worshiping God. And it was just a very exciting time, just like we do on Sunday morning. And they were having a good time, and they got down to this place called Nakan, and everything's going well. Um, now, is David doing the right thing, bringing the ark to Jerusalem? What do you think? You guys help me out. Do you think he was doing the right thing? Yeah, that was right. Was he doing it in the right way? No. You know, remember I told you how only the Levites are supposed to move it? And how they're supposed to do it in this reverential way? They were doing it in their own way. They weren't following God's instructions. And then the ark tipped. And Isaiah went to grab it. And you know what happened? Isaiah was like, he was dead. Just like that. Ironic because Isaiah means strength. Wasn't too strong on that occasion. And ironic because here the ark he was trying to help ends up killing him. And David is concerned. And how do you think David felt? How would you feel if that had happened to you? You're trying to do something good for God, and this goes wrong. I'm sure this has never happened to you, but I mean, sometimes you ever feel like, I'm doing the best I can. Why did I lose my job? Or why don't I get a promotion when I'm doing better than anybody else here? Doesn't God care? Or how could the giants go into another tailspin? <laughs> you know, when these things happen, what does it do for us? The first emotion that you have is anger. Every time in grief, and, and research has shown this is almost always true, that when you go through a grievous experience in your life, you experience anger. How could that happen to me? Whose fault is it? Why is this happening? God, why aren't you taking care of me? I'm doing my share. Why aren't you doing yours? And David will cry out to God like that very openly, which we all should do. He, he's just open with his emotions. He says what a lot of us are thinking. How could you do this? Then the next thing that eventually comes along at some point is fear. When you realize, I'm not in control of this thing. And David acknowledges that God is. And David says, oh, I'm fearful. And he even says, who am I that you would even let me bring this ark to Jerusalem? And David then shows responsibility. And he calls for a cooling off period. Uh, there is a man named Obed-Edom called Obed-Edom the Gittite. You probably don't hear that much about him. I think I'm, I'm looking forward to meeting him in heaven. He was a doorkeeper. His job was to guard the ark. And he did that faithfully for many years. And now they're moving the ark, and it happens to be passing by the home where he lives, so they say, let's just leave it at Obed-Edom's house. Now, this is what's interesting. Obed-Edom was a Gittite, just like if you're going to talk about me, you say, Ron the Oakdalian, right? Well, he was, he was Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now, here's what's interesting about being Obed-Edom the Gittite. Gittite means Gath. There were a number of towns called Gath, but the major Jewish town called Gath was Gath-Rimmon. You go, why are you going to this detail? Why is this important? It is important because Gath-Rimmon was just a hill away from Jerusalem. 
they were that close. But David said, no, I'm not going to force this baby. I don't want anybody else to get hurt, and I don't want to go against God's will. We're backing off. And he took three months off to figure out what in the world they did wrong. Have you ever done the right thing in the wrong way? It's, it's really easy to do. You know, you, you go to church on Sunday morning, you get into a Bible study, you know, you, you seem like to everybody else that you really are growing in your relationship with God. That is what? Is that the right thing to do those things? Those are the right things. But you're not spending any time with God. You don't make any time to spend personal time talking with and cultivating the relationship with your Heavenly Father. So you're doing the right thing, but you know, you're neglecting what's the most important thing. You're going about it in the wrong way. Um, you study your Bible, but you read it like a textbook. It's really good. You're studying it. That's the right thing. But you're just reading it like a textbook. You're not talking back and forth through the Bible. You're not reading Psalms and crying as you think through your own life and things that maybe you've done right or maybe things you've done right, wrong or right, and you're, you're rejoicing or you're sad or you're, you're experiencing emotions. You're learning things. You're saying, this is what I'm going to do to apply this to my life. You just... You're just kind of going through the motion. So on the surface, yeah, I'm doing the right thing, but I'm going about it the wrong way. You, know, you have relationships with people where, you know, you're, you, know you, you make people, it's important to have relationships with people, but you can make people too important, make them more important than God. You can be a good parent. You want to spend a lot of time with your kids, but could you be dominating your kids and manipulating them? Or could they be dominating and manipulating you? You see, doing the right thing, doing it in the wrong way. Telling other people about Jesus, right thing, but doing it in an obnoxious way isn't the right thing. And those are the things, you know, you kind of get the point. You, you get a job. You're really good at this job. You're really gifted. You're using God's gift, and it's an answer to prayer. So now you stop coming to church. Right thing, wrong way. See how those things can happen so easily? And David is, is really cool because he gets it. And the, and the main thing to get here is to realize that you're doing it in the wrong way. Some, one of the biggest problems... One of the biggest problems that I think we have as people is ad admitting that we're sinners, admitting that we do things wrong. You know, our culture is becoming more of a shame-based culture. We're so ashamed to admit that we've done anything wrong that we try to hide it, and we won't admit it. And, and our, our go-to response is, I didn't do that, even before God. We start trying to make up all the excuses why it wasn't wrong what we did. One of the reasons I believe that David is called a man after God's own heart is because he always fessed up to what he did wrong. He always fessed up. And if there's one thing that's really extremely important for us as children of God, one of the most important things that you could ever learn is that you do a lot of things wrong. And that's okay because everybody else does too. And once you can own up to that, and once you can start saying, looking for what you might have done wrong, then you have a chance to get out of it. But as long as you hold out, you only make the situation worse. And, and it'll cause anxiety and all sorts of problems because you're not dealing with it. And so I think that's a real sign of health for us in Christ when we're able to talk honestly and openly about the things we've done wrong in our lives and how we've learned from them. So David does that well. I'll we'll move to the next section, and uh, we're going to be looking at 
verses 12 through 19, 12 through 20, I think it is. So verses 12 through 20, uh, and the next thing that happens is David decides to do it right. And one of the reasons he decides to do it right is he gets news that Obed-Edom's house is doing really well. Now, we don't know what's happening, but something's going well at Obed-Edom's house. The little doorkeeper is having a great time, his family, the friends, everybody's enjoying it. That is the place to gather, Obed-Edom's house. If you only had a better name, you know, just forever to say that name, Obed-Edom. So, uh, but he has, everything else is going well for him. Everybody's happy. They're coming over to the house, and David hears about it. And David says, you know, I think it's time to get things right. David does it right this time, and you know why he does it right? And we know this for sure, because it's the only way he could have known. David goes back to where to find out how to do this? Where does David find information for how to do it the right way? The Bible. The first five books of the Bible were written. Leviticus goes into detail about how you're supposed to take care of the ark, how you're supposed to build it, everything. He went back to his Bible, and he got things right. So he read his Bible, read what he's supposed to do, and this time he does it right, and he makes sacrifices along the way, and people are celebrating, and they're, they're blowing ram's horns, and they're playing music, and they're shouting, and David gets into it. David takes off his royal robes. Now, a king wore royal robes. Uh, you know, we don't do that so much in our country. People will dress up in a suit maybe, but in other countries, kings actually have outfits that they wear that show that they're the king. And what it was he wore, I'm not even quite for sure, but he took those off and he was in a linen ephod. He wore the same outfit that all the priests wore. And what David was saying essentially is, I'm not the king. I'm the servant of the king. God is the king. This is his throne. And I'm recognizing that. What a lesson for us in leadership to recognize that we're not the leader. God is the leader, and we're following him. Do our employees, do they recognize that? Do the people we're training recognize that? Do the people at church recognize that? That it's not about me, it's about God. We're following God. I'm just an instrument that he's using in that process. When people begin to see that there's something bigger there, it, it begins to have an impact on their lives. And David understood that. And David is dancing, and the word for dancing is interesting. It's only used here in the Bible, and it meant that he was twirling himself around. And the idea is he was probably doing something very athletic. Remember, he's a young man who was a great warrior and probably a tremendous athlete. Probably very muscular and very athletic, and he's, he's, he's just he's running and dancing, Dancing's okay as long as it's not, you know, done for seductive reasons and those kinds of things. I mean, it was just for fun and pleasure, and, and he's dancing before God. And everybody's having a good time. And when he's all done, he takes portions of the sacrifices, and he gives everybody food to go take home. And he, and he sings a song. First Chronicles says he sings a beautiful song. And then he says, okay, we're done. Everybody can go home. And it's just a celebration from start to finish. And so we see that David did the wrong thing, but now he does the right thing. He changes it. He learns what's the right thing to do. Are you doing the right thing? How do you know you're doing the right thing? Well, we've already talked about how you confess it, but I think of 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, verses uh, 16 through 18, where, where Paul writes about the Bible, and he says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It all comes from God. That's the first thing. But he goes on to say, this is what we're supposed to do with it. It's good. It's profitable for teaching. So we learn from it. But don't stop there. It's profitable for rebuke. It tells us what we did wrong. 
We already talked about that. We're not going to belabor it because that's not fun to talk about. But then it talks about correction, how we can change it. And then if we keep doing that, it, it, it trains us to be people of righteousness. Isn't that cool? So you can learn so that you don't keep making the same mistakes. It's okay to make a mistake. You confess it. God's forgiven you already anyway. You don't have to worry about it. But you now go and you say, how can I make the right decision? When you study your Bibles, are you asking the question, what have I done wrong and how can I correct it? What have I, every time we study the Bible, we should say, is there something that I'm forsaking, something I'm messing up on, Lord? If so, show me. And, um, and you, know, I, you know, you don't have to get upset. It's all right. Um, you, just, you just confess it. You just confess it, and then you go back, and um, you look at what can I do to make this right in my life. Um, now, there are times when things go wrong, and it's going wrong because you're not walking with the Lord. And I've discovered that in my life, that when things go wrong, I, I will back off, and oftentimes I will say, Lord, am I doing something wrong here? And sometimes I am. And sometimes I'm not, because we live in a fallen world. So bad things happen to us even when we're doing the right thing. And we can still feel the lack of God's presence at times. And I believe that sometimes God withdraws his presence in order to draw us to him. He withdraws his presence to draw us to him. I know of a story of a pastor who was not feeling God's presence for a long time, so he would take his chair out in the woods every day for an hour and just sit there. Did that for about a year until he began to experience again in a way that's hard to explain that God was there. God was with him, and he was walking with God again. My experience hasn't been quite like that, but I would say that my experience with God ebbs and flows just like my experience ebbs and flows in every relationship that I have. Last weekend, Carrie and I went away um, to Mendocino. I wish we'd have gone this week. Um, but anyway, the weather was really cool. We had a wonderful time. And, you know, we have been, I mean, we've been dating since we were kids, basically. And, and so we have this relationship. We're kindred spirits, and we just love talking together and laughing together and eating together and taking walks and reading the Bible, reading books and praying. And I mean, we just love being, getting in mischief together. We just, we have fun. We just really have a good time. And we were both talking about how much we enjoy being with each other, how much we enjoy relationship. But you know what? There have been times when we have felt distant from each other. There are times when you just feel that distance. You know, you know different circumstances, hardships, you're separated, whatever it is, and you get, or, or maybe there's unconfessed sin on one of your sides, and you have a position of this separation for a while. And sometimes there's nothing you're doing wrong at all. It just, you just don't feel that way like you did at other times. So what happens then? Do you... Do you just stop the relationship? Does it mean that she doesn't love me, that I don't love her? Is it time to start considering divorce? By no means. You just hang in there, and you keep pursuing the relationship because you know how good it is. And then the relationship has a high point again. And it's usually, and the more you pursue it, the more that high point stays high. That's how relationships are. If you stop every time you have a conflict, you'll never have a deep relationship with anybody. That's how your relationship is with God. You don't stop when things are going bad. You keep pursuing the relationship. And as time goes on, that relationship becomes more meaningful, and you get closer, and it's just it's happening more regularly. And you stay at a higher level for a longer time. Now, finally, we're going to see, though, 
that some people were pursuing God with the wrong heart. And in particular, as we conclude today's message, we're going to meet up with a gal again who we've met in the past named Michael. That's a guy's name, but this name is spe- it's spelled a little different, but it's still pronounced pretty much the same way, Michael. Michael um, was David's first wife. She was the queen of Israel. But she's not called the queen of Israel. Neither is she called David's wife. She's called Saul's daughter. Because King Saul was the previous king who had chased after her husband to kill him. And we believe that she's called Saul's daughter because she acts a lot more like Saul. And she has an attitude problem we're about to see. David comes home, and the the queen was supposed to come out with all the other women in the court and the little girls, and they were supposed to run out there and sing and dance and hug daddy and tell him what a great job he'd done and what a wonderful day this was been. That's what they did in their culture. But she comes out, and, and she has a message for her husband. And, uh, and I'm going to read that message to you here. She says, hmm, I'm going to try to read that message. Here it is. Um, he says, she says this, How the king of Israel honored himself today, this dripping of sarcasm, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Literally, she's saying, you made yourself naked before all the people. What is she getting at? What's her attitude? What's this all about? Well, what she's saying is, you didn't act regal. You didn't act like a king. My father never would have done that. You took off your robes, and you acted like a regular person. How do you expect people to follow you? Don't you know that we are people of importance? Don't you know that we are people of purpose? How could you do that in front of everybody? It was as if you took off all your clothes. You embarrassed me. Not only that, but while you did that, you were putting on a show. I saw you dancing, and I saw all the ladies watching you, the servant girls. You're flirting with them, David. Are you messing with any of them? That's what she's saying. What is her problem? Where is this coming from? Sounds like she needs to see a psychologist. If we do a little bit of psychology on here, we can figure things out pretty quickly. She was Saul's daughter. She was the youngest. Dad was had mental problems. She was undeniably would have been verbally abused, at least. She had a tough childhood. She was obstinate in her teenage years. She had a crush on David when she was a young teenager because he was the hero of Israel, the captain of a division that won battle after battle. He was in his early 20s. He was handsome. He had it all going for him. And and so Saul got them married because he thought that she would be a thorn in his flesh. We're never told that David loved her, but they had a good marriage, so we assume that so much. They, they got along well, and a couple of years together, things were going well. On one occasion, she even saved his life. Saul sent some hit men to get him, and she let him get out of the, the back window and jump out and escape. But here's where it gets curious. She never went after David. There's no, no sign that she made any effort to follow him and live in his hardship when he was an outlaw. That, wasn't, that was a little bit too far for her to go. And so she stayed where she was. And her, husband, her father annulled the marriage and had her married to another man called Paul Tiel, who loved her and who later wept when she was taken away from him because David became king and David asked for her back. David probably threw a festival for her and now he has her back and now they're in power. But there's a strained relationship between them. You know what the problem is primarily? She doesn't follow God like David does. She doesn't have a heart for God. She's making this all about David and this is all about God. Instead of rejoicing in the presence of God come to Jerusalem, she's mad about David because she feels like he's gone about it in the wrong way and he hasn't made himself more important 
and have people worshiping him. So her real problem is her heart. But there's another problem, and this is a David problem, and that is when she comes to live with David, she discovers that it's no longer just her and David. David has a harem, and he's emotionally much closer to Abigail than he's ever been close to her, and her heart is broken. Do you feel for her? I mean, part of my heart feels for her. She's had it hard. She's made some bad decisions, but she's also had it hard. But I think the problem with, I think the problem with Michael is she became bitter instead of better. David always has something to say, right? I mean, this guy is, is verbal. He, he has verbal issues sometimes, and he can, he can talk right off the cuff. So he speaks back to her, and this is what he says. It was before Yahweh who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of Yahweh, and I will celebrate before Yahweh. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And then it, it ends with this cryptic note, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, David is basically saying, you and I wanted me to be king, babe. Remember? Remember, we talked about this. Now I'm there. How come you're bucking me? Don't you understand that this isn't about me? And it isn't about you. This is about the God of the universe. And I'm willing to be an absolute fool and do whatever he asks me to do, and you should too. But they just aren't on the same page. So what happens? We don't know. On, on the surface, it sounds like he decided not to have relations with her anymore, which is possible. But in the context, it's more likely that God, basically because of her hard heart, hardened her womb, and she wasn't able to have any more children. What we do know is her name is never mentioned again in the Bible and that other women become more prominent than her as queens, and she fades in the background and she doesn't have any children, and in all likelihood dies probably over the next 20 years. One of the tragic figures in Scripture. I want to end today by having you take a look at some lessons we can learn from three people because there's one other person that I want to mention as I go into that, and that's our friend Obed-Edom. In First Chronicles, it says, it doesn't quite, say it quite this way, but after it's described the problems that David's having, it talks again about Obed-Edom, the doorkeeper, and how well he's doing with his family. And it reminds me of Jesus saying, many who are last will be first, and many who are first will be last. Let's look at these three people, and maybe you can identify with one more than the other. Are you more like Michael? Michael's had a hard time. She was abused probably as a child. Maybe you were abused. She was mistreated. Perhaps she was bullied. She had these big dreams, and they... They vanished. They, 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 they fell apart. The man she loved was taken away from her. And then when they came back, he had other affections for other people. Could you imagine how difficult that must have been? But when you get to a position like that, are you going to turn to God or are you going to turn away from God? You know, sometimes people blame God. It's not God. We live in a fallen world. The reason that there are problems in this world is because of the people in this world, and that includes you. And even though you may be primarily the victim, you have made your mistakes. And it's not until you realize that you are part of the problem and you turn fully to God that you can finally have peace. You, otherwise, you'll just get embittered. You have to forgive. You know, forgiveness, you know, is, is finding out that, that, you know, setting the captive free. You know, forgiveness is setting the captive free and finding out that the captive was you. 
So you forgive. You let it go. You move on. And, and you work out those relationships. And if things aren't working out, then you just, you know, you, you can't control everything. You accept it. You move on with your life. Um, but don't get bitter. How about David? How many of you are willing to do anything for God? Absolutely anything he would ask you to do. How many of you have the passion that David had? And when you make a mistake, how many times can you even remember where you've made a mistake and you've corrected it? Where you've gone and told somebody you're sorry? Where you've gone and made amends with God and made it right? That's David. But there's one thing with David is there's a skeleton in the closet. Do you have a skeleton in your closet? I don't think he saw it. But it was the women. It was that harem he had. It's been said that the, first per- the last person to know that he's an alcoholic is the alcoholic. Maybe you're working too much. Heard a, a Elizabeth Elliot quote, love Elizabeth Elliot quotes this week, where she was saying that, you know, we are too, you know, we're so busy, and people always, we kind of are proud of being busy, basically. And she pointed out that if you're too busy, you're probably not walking with God. <coughs> Especially if you're too busy to spend time with God and do His will. So maybe you need to cut some things off the list and zero in on the things that really matter. But we get so busy that we neglect our family, our friends, and our God. And that is not pleasing to the God of the universe. And it can become a workaholism, and it can become a thing that eats us up, and we don't even realize it. I mean, it can sneak into things like watching movies you shouldn't watch, listening to songs you shouldn't, getting then slipping, going down a slippery slope, and now you're in pornography. Or maybe a shopping thing, you know, where you just you keep buying things and buying things and you, you keep thinking like you want more and you realize you shouldn't or an eating addiction or whatever, drinking. You can get into those things quickly. And if you are, it's, so, it's not okay, but God loves you. He's already forgiven you. And now it's just a matter of saying, okay, I've done the wrong thing. Now I correct. And that's a lot of work, but you can pull yourself out of that situation. David does at the end of his life. And that's why David is a man after his own heart, God's own heart. And then, finally, we see Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom's a doorkeeper. Guess what? Most of us are too. For all intents and purposes, most of us are doorkeepers. Are you the best doorkeeper you can be? Are you using your gifts and abilities for God and doing the best you can for Him, walking closely with Him? And then let Him take care of the rest. Don't worry about it. You don't have to worry, be upset. He'll take care of it, and He'll make sure that it all ends out right in the end. So, you know, we've, we've seen examples of these lives. I don't know which one relates the most to you, but I know this, that um, when we follow God, um, and when we, when we walk with Him, then we'll find the right path to His presence. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for this day that really hasn't been too hot. The breeze has hung in there for us. Thank you for that. And thank you for all the people who have come. Thank you for your word. Thank you for David's example. And pray that you would help us to just continue to praise you through worship now and to be thoughtful and meditative on the things that we've been talking about. Amen.